So good, good, good. Well, we are in a series uh, called Firm Foundations, looking again at discipleship as we did last year. And uh, just to give you an idea of where we're going, uh, we're going to look at these following subjects. Firstly, we looked last week at dead without God, what it means that, uh, that when the scriptures say we're dead without God, without hope, but now we're alive in Christ. Then we are going to look at identity being transformed. That's what we're going to do today. Saints, not sinners. It's critical to understand that we're no longer sinners once we know Christ. We are called saints. We're changed by the Spirit. That's our fourth subject. Intentional leadership. We go on this discipleship journey, which is about learning to live like Jesus. It's critical that we're intentional about it, that there are many people and places involved in discipleship, that we have a language in common. We did that loads last year, and that there is an environment, a way of discipleship. We've call it the environment of heaven. All of these eight things are going to be key on this journey, so I'd urge you to stick with this series. It's going to be foundational for us. And if you notice, uh, the very sharp amongst you, the first letters actually spell a, a word, disciple. I mean, who knew? I mean, look at that. That's just, I mean, that's, you know, that's what you give your offering for right there. That was, that was worth having. That was worth coming for. Just that moment alone as the revelation hit you. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, so we're going to go through that. The first four are really the foundations of discipleship, the foundations of learning to live like Jesus. And the second four are the framework. And so we're going to look at those across uh, this series. And um, the, this morning... Last week we looked at Dead Without God. This morning we're going to look at uh, identity being transformed. And our series uh, uh, of messages that we do across our course, TSM, which lasts a year, when you talk to people at the end of the year, and we always have an evening or a day where we discuss what difference has this course made for you, again and again people say it was this message on identity that most changed their lives. Uh, We did a whole series of talks a few years ago, which you can get on the website or the app. But this morning I just want to unpack it a little more. What is it about identity that is so critical? critical to changing your life. Here's one of their stories. This year was about understanding my identity. I didn't appreciate how much of an orphan I was after my parents died. Having been a Christian for many years, I didn't think it had affected me that much. But now I've realized that instead of being on my own, I have a family. Identity is crucial. It is crucial. Edward VIII said this, My father used to say to me, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are, for if you remember your identity, you will behave accordingly. So much of what we do is about changing our behavior, and there's nothing wrong with that, apart from the fact that unless you understand what your identity is, it will never change over the long haul. When you understand your identity, your behavior changes almost automatically. Everything you do comes from who you are. And we also need to understand that our identity is crucial because there is a war against our identity. There is a battle for your identity. It is waged every day. You know, Charlie Chaplin once entered Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition and came third. There is a a world at war with your and my identity. And it's so, so critical that the formula that you and I learn at an early age is this. My identity equals my performance plus others' opinions of me. My identity equals my performance plus others' opinions of me. Do you remember when your parents sat you down and taught you that formula? Uh, I remember it. No, no one remembers that. No one remembers that lesson when your parents said, you know what, your identity is your performance plus others' opinions of you. But who knows, that's true. That is what we pick up somehow. The, The message is reinforced again and again. My identity is my performance plus others' opinions of me. And so when we're doing great and others think we're great, then our identity is solid and strong. But when we fail, and particularly when others think we fail, suddenly the whole thing starts to come unhinged. And sometimes it's those moments, uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine, uh, uh, the father of a friend, had one of those moments 
where he was at a dinner party and he was chatting to a lady, a stranger he'd never met before, and she was going to take a bite out of a canopy, and as she did, he noticed there was a hair on it. He thought, oh, I don't want her to eat that. So he says, oh, sorry, there's some hair on your food. Grabs the hair, but unfortunately it was attached to her lip. <laughs> Pulls it away from the food and her lip comes with the hair. And so now he's in an utter dilemma. Do you, do you keep pulling? Or do you let go and let it spring back? He's in that moment. Anyone else had moments like that? where everyone else, you know, I have failed, I have failed, I am a rubbish human being, I don't deserve to live, and everyone else says, yes, you're right, you are. <laughs> we have those moments and they attack at the core of our identity. I won't tell you the end of the story, I don't know what happened. <laughs> the truth of the scriptures is this, our identity is not based on our performance or other people's opinions of us, it is based on God's view of who we are. So we're going to look at this morning our new identity. Many of you have heard messages like this before on identity. We talk about it a lot. I want you to look at this again through fresh lens, both for yourself, but also to think through the lens of how do I train others? How, do, how would I impart this to the people around me? Who is it around me that I need to disciple to bring into this truth? This is not just for us. It's to give away. For some of you, this is the first time you'll hear it, then you get ready to have your world rocked and turned upside down. We'll read from the same passage as last week, Ephesians chapter 2. That's what I love about the Bible. You can read the same passage and do 16 different sermons. Here we go. Number two on the same passage. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If you're not a believer here this morning, just read that verse over and over and over again. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. That, that word means undeserved favor. It wasn't anything you could have done. It was by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, actually. It's not about our works. It's actually about we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Five truths about our identity. The first is this, the lie that we're told is this, you are insignificant. You are a bunch of cells, a bunch of atoms wandering around for 70, 80, 90 years if you're lucky and then you're gone and your life meant nothing. It has no purpose, it has no meaning. Even the people who you know and who are around, they don't really like you, they just want you for what you can give them. You have no meaning, no significance, that's what we're told again and again. That's the voice that goes off in our heads. I read a story, an article one time called Jumpers. And the article was about people who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Since it was built in 1930s, 1,200 people have jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge to their almost certain deaths. And it was a gripping article looking at their stories, the stories of those that they'd left behind. And one, one sentence stood out to me, an 18-year-old girl who jumped and left this note. And she said, no one will miss a fat, boring person like me. That was her last thought, her last message to this world. Everything about the article said hopelessness, purposeless, insignificance. That's what it said. And that's the sort of people that are, that's what they're feeling as they jump off that bridge. But you know what? There are many who never go that far but feel that their whole lives. <laughs> they believe the lie. Many of us have bought into that lie. I am insignificant. What does Paul say about this? He says this. 
but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. <laughs> he loved us into significance. In fact, our significance begins and ends with his love. Your, his love for you defines your significance, that he is called. And I used to think, well, you know, God has to love you. That's what God does. <laughs> you know, he is that guy. You know, that's what he does. It's kind of what is, you know, he gets up in the morning. He loves. He can't help himself. He's God. But it's not that kind of love. Deuteronomy 7 says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his affection on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the promise that he swore to your fathers. Isn't the Old Testament about God angry, blasting people? No, no, no. It says he set his affection on you. He set his affection on you. The lie is you're insignificant. The truth is you are loved by God himself, the most important and significant being in the universe, loves you. And not just a cold kind of, well, he's God and he has to do it kind of love, but an affection that is for you and I. And anyway, fundamentally, if you think you're insignificant, try sleeping one night with a mosquito in your room. Size does not define significance, does it? <laughs> Try sleeping one night with a mosquito. Mosquitoes know they are significant. <laughs> they know and live out, even though they are tiny, they live significant lives and they can affect the lives of the world around them because they live out who they are. It's the same for us. <laughs> it's the same for us. It doesn't matter how big you are. It's about who you are and living out of that place. The second lie is this. You're defective. You're ugly. You're too short. You're too tall. You're too fat, you're too thin, you're too thick, you're too much of a boffin, you are emotionally stunted. You are defective. And this lie goes off all the time. Hits at our identity in whatever your particular brand of poison might be. These, these were, and, and, then, and, and even, you know, the, the funny thing about it, it doesn't matter whether you're doing well or whether you're doing badly. Because when you're, you're doing well, you're doing really well, and then the little voice will go, yeah, but don't forget you're fat. <laughs> Anyone relate to this? <laughs> you're doing really well, but the voice goes, yeah, don't forget you're fat. And then you're doing really badly, and it'll say, yeah, but and also you're fat. <laughs> you can't escape it, doing well or badly. The lie hits again, again and again at this in, a, in our hearts. What does Paul say in verse 10? We are God's workmanship. Another word, we are God's masterpiece. Some of you have heard these things before, but this is a great reminder. You are his masterpiece. When that lie kicks off that tries to knock you back, to put you back in your box, sometimes it's even the words that people have said to you, reminding, ringing in your head like a resounding gong over and over. The truth will cut in and speak, no, 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 you are God's masterpiece. One, 139 Psalm said this, for you formed me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful of your works. My soul knows it very well. Notice that it's not about my head knowing it. It's about my soul knowing it. Can you look yourself in the mirror and say, I am God's masterpiece. I am God's masterpiece. Breaks us out of the self-hatred. Listen to this story of someone. Everything was black. I suffered so much from social anxiety. I was locked in comparison and control. My dad is an alcoholic, so I tried to control everything. I hated myself. I couldn't even look in the mirror. I didn't know who I was. But the truth of my identity in Christ broke in this year. I now see life in color 
I don't feel the heaviness anymore, and I know that I'm worth being loved. I've, allowed, I've learned to allow others to love me and to love them in return. I believe the truth. I am his masterpiece. I tell you, when it gets under your skin, suddenly the black and white of life becomes color. You start to see the world as it really is. The third is this. I am what I am. I cannot change. I am hopeless. It's the, sh the lie of shame. It's the lie of the shame of things done to you, the things that you've done locked up in this place. I, I, I prayed with a guy who's a, a businessman. He'd gone bankrupt in his business. His business had collapsed. His family had gone through incredible hardship because of that collapse. Had to sell his, the home and just incredible. And he had never expressed it before, but he was gripped with shame. Shame at how he'd failed himself, failed his family, failed his employees. Shame, shame, shame. And the power of God broke into him with the truth. And the truth is this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Liars, you're hopeless. You're locked in shame. The truth is this. That while you were dead, yeah, you are hopeless. <laughs> The Bible agrees with you. You're hopeless. But Christ made you alive in him. You were dead once, but he has now made you alive. He has given you a hope and a purpose. The, the fourth lie is this. You have to earn God's favor, work hard, and you might just make it. That was a story of my Christian life. We looked at it. I told it some last week. You, you, you have to just keep the pedals turning. You have to keep the activity going to please this God who's really unpleasable, but you might as well do your best. And the truth is this, I am saved by grace. Undeserved favor breaks me free from the perpetual treadmill of try, try, try. And then the fifth lie is this, you are limited. You will never have enough. The disciples faced this. You know, they were in a situation, 5,000 people, none of them had enough food to eat. And I mean, I've got three kids and when they're hungry, it's misery. Uh, and so they've got 5,000, and they're like, Jesus, you know, what do we, what do, we do? You know, the, what, do we, what do we do? And Jesus is like, you give them something to eat. And so they're like, a bunch of chickens are like, bah, 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 yes, give us something. Bah, 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 bah. And they're like, we haven't got enough food. We've got, we got, we got this five, three months' wages. We can't give them something to eat. Because they bought into this lie, you haven't got enough. You won't be enough. You are limited. And what does Jesus do when he, he takes the problem back off them? It says he looks to heaven and thanks his Father. See, Jesus' reality was different from theirs. His reality was that you are unlimited when you can see the resources of heaven. You are limited on this earth, but when you see the resources of heaven, you suddenly become unlimited in what you can do. You become unlimited. Your only limit is I've got to do what the Father tells me to do. We, we are facing this situation as a family right now. We are recognizing the limitations of our resources, but we are trying to do our best every day to look to heaven and say, Father, you have enough. You are enough. Sometimes it comes down to that simple prayer, doesn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. You know, many of us get, we forget that prayer. It's just one of those things in the Lord's Prayer. You go through seasons when you think, I don't even know what that prayer means or why you'd pray it. But then you go into seasons like, God, I need your bread today. <laughs> don't worry about tomorrow. I just need it today to get through the end of today. I need your breakthrough. The lie says you, will have, you are limited. You will never have enough. What does Paul say? It says he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places. 
in heavenly places. And I, I've told my story of breakthrough before when we, in this building project we were in, faced a, 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 a shortage of a quarter of a million pounds and had three months to raise it. And I was desperate. God, what are you going to do? God, I'm desperate. And one minute I was like, yes, God's going to provide. The next minute I was like, no, we're going to go bankrupt and I might end up in prison. And the next day, yes, God is going to provide. And I was just backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And then, I, and then I read the story of George Muller again, which I'd heard many times. He ran orphanages for 300 orphans. Comes down one, one morning, there's no breakfast. And he says, let's pray. And the kids with him pray. And then there's a knock on the door. And the baker says, God woke me up at 4 a.m. said, you wouldn't have enough food. I wouldn't have enough food for breakfast. I'll bake you some bread. Then there's another knock. The milkman's there. My cart just broke down. On the back of the cart, I've got to offload all the milk, but then it will be spoiled. So can you have it? Do you need it right now? Maybe. And they have breakfast provided like that. And I'd, I'd read, that's a famous story. I'd seen it so many times, but I'd never read the line when, of what he actually says when he comes down the stairs. He comes down the stairs and says, children, let's pray. Let's see what the Father will do. And it totally changed me as I realized his heart was transformed to have a heavenly perspective. He saw every difficulty as an opportunity. His identity was changed from the inside out, and he suddenly knew who he was. And when he came across a difficulty, when he came across a problem, when he came across the impossible, instead of thinking, well, that's impossible, he looked to heaven and said, Father, let's see what you're going to do. God is calling us to be transformed in our identity, to think and to see our situations as God sees them from his perspective. How then do we live this stuff out? And I want to, there's lots of things that we could say on that, but I want to make one application. Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. To live out my identity, to live out your identity in Christ means to step into his life and it is the life of a servant. You know, if my revelation of identity doesn't make me more of a servant, then I've got the wrong revelation. It makes me more of a son, but it's a son who's a servant. That's what Jesus modeled. He was the servant son, the servant king. And so our identity steps us into a place of service in a whole new way. I heard a story of a mother preparing uh, pancakes for her two sons, Kevin, who was five, and Ryan, who was three. And they were arguing about who would get the first pancake and who would, who would have it. And, uh, and she thought this is a lesson, to, to, this is an opportunity to teach them something. She said, guys, if Jesus were here, he would be saying, let my brother have the first pancake, I can wake. And Kevin immediately says, Ryan, you play Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we have to get this revelation that Jesus was by nature of a servant. Some worry if you teach people too much about identity, won't, they, won't it puff them up? Won't it make them think, well, everyone else should serve me? Well, if it does, it's the wrong revelation. Because the true revelation of identity motivates us to serve, motivates us to step. There's a security. We don't need to be served. Often when we feel that like others need to serve us, it's because of an insecurity. Because we feel like it would somehow lower our status to serve. But we, when we follow Christ, we recognize he was the one who was not afraid to lower his status to serve. In fact, that's what he came to do. 
He came to serve his family. He came not to build an organization, but to build a family, a family that serves one another. And we, we had a lodger one time, and uh, uh, when he moved out, on the day he moved out, we weren't there, but we came home, and there was a whacking great hole in the wall. It was like the size of a fist. And we thought, oh, gosh, you know. And we weren't going to say anything, you know, just like one of those, those things. Anyway, a, few, a month or so later, we hadn't fixed it yet. He came, he saw, he came to dinner. He said, where'd that hole come from? We said, well, it kind of happened on the day you moved out. He's like... I never noticed. I was like, how can you miss a hole the size of a fist in the wall? Because he was a lodger. You see, when you're family, you notice when fists go through walls. It's just what you do. You notice the gaps. You notice the holes. When you're part of a lodging arrangement, when you're just part of an organization, to you, it doesn't really make a difference. I'd urge you, follow in the step of Christ as you live out your identity and live from the place of service. Live from the place of service. This is what Bill Hybels writes. Dr. Bill Zakian was my mentor. He still is, but back when I first sat under Dr. B's teaching, I was a little hard-headed. He presented a challenge to me and our group of students and volunteers. He said, put Christ's words to the test. For six months, he said, take the great gamble. Follow the model of Jesus with reckless abandon. Take advantage of every opportunity to serve, even if it seems like something insignificant. Be the one who opens the doors for others. Choose the back seat of the car so your friend can sit in front. Take out the garbage, even though it's not normally your job. Volunteer to stack the chairs after the meeting. Take the arm of the elderly lady negotiating the stairs in the department store. Open your eyes. Monitor the condition of your heart, week to week. Ask yourself, am I gaining or am I losing? Am I becoming more like Christ? And if you want to, he said, try it the other way. Every chance you have, put yourself in the center. Be demanding. Ask the world to revolve around you. Push your way to the front of the line. Disappear when it's time for the dirty work, the the menial tasks. Then step back and honestly assess, are you becoming closer to God? and people are more isolated. Is your life fuller or emptier? Do you feel fulfilled or more frustrated? Take the great gamble. Those of us at the core of our ministry decided to accept Dr. B's challenge. And at the end of six months, we were all working harder than we'd ever imagined we would, but we were having a ball. We discovered skills we didn't know we had. We felt energized. We felt like family. We felt committed and connected in a way we'd never had before when we just came to get our needs met. We were seeing kids' lives change. We were deepening our relationships as we served together day after day. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. We were finding that fullness of life as we accepted Dr. B's challenge and served. There's so much we could say about finding our identity, finding and living out of our identity. But one of the most important things is recognizing that the more we get it, the more we've got to give it away, (laughs) the more we've got to serve one another. It's not often convenient. Sometimes you're tired. Sometimes it's pushing yourself. Not all the time. There's a place for rest as well. But sometimes, you know, I was doing a conference one time and I, as I, I, was, I prayed with so many people and I walked to the back and right in the back corner there was a young girl, mid-twenties, early-twenties, and she was standing there on her own just waiting for prayer, you could tell, eyes closed, hands out. Ministry team had missed her. They were off somewhere else. And as I, I, everything in me wanted to walk out the door and think someone else would get to her. And I thought, I just, the Holy Spirit just grabbed me and said, pray for her. I was like, Lord, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy, she's a young girl. It'd be better if you got one of the ladies to do it. And I really felt, I said, no, pray for you, pray for her. So I stopped and I said, what's happening, what's going on? And she said, my dad killed himself when, he was, when I was 16 and I found the body. And I suddenly realized I wasn't getting out of there anytime soon. <laughs> I wasn't leaving anytime soon. 
And so I pulled over a friend who was a, a female and said, would you come and pray with me? And we prayed and she wept and cried. And she got so much freedom of the revelation of the Father. And at the end, she said this. She said, you know why this has been so significant today that you stopped to pray for me? Because my dad's name was Simon. Suddenly you realize it had to be me. I had to be the one. It couldn't have been anyone. That's why God had made other people not see her because it had to be me for him to do the work that he wanted to do in her heart to bring her healing. It's the same for all of us. There's things that he's calling you to do. It's not just about getting busy, busy, busy. We've talked about that. It's about saying, Father, what do you want me to do? How can I serve this family? How can I serve? What is my part, small or great? What do you want me to do? How can I step into the shoes of Christ? How can I live out this identity and live as a family? Let's pray.